1 Peter 3, 8-22. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. So, playing that game of word association, what comes to your mind when I say the word evangelist? In my book, an evangelist is someone who takes initiative in telling other people about Jesus, and is so keen to do so that people end up hearing about Jesus whether they're interested or not. We're not all called to be evangelists, but we are all called to be witnesses to our faith. Church of England recently committed a piece of, commissioned a piece of research entitled Talking Jesus. And as part of that survey, practicing Christians were asked what were the most significant contributing factors to their finding faith. 41% said they were brought up in a Christian home. 28% mentioned going to church. Coming in joint third at 27% were reading the Bible and having a conversation with someone they knew well about the faith. So having conversations about faith is really important. But we could do better. When non-Christians were asked about the faith, how they felt about the faith of someone who'd spoken to them, 42% said, actually, I'm glad I don't share that person's faith, which is a bit disconcerting. Only 16% oh, I really wish I had that faith myself. But one in five wanted to know more as a result of those conversations. 
And almost one in four felt more positive about Jesus afterwards. So the truth remains that disciples are made one conversation at a time. And if we're to think about how to reach out to people who weren't brought up in a Christian home, we need to recognise that less than one in ten of the population attends church with any degree of frequency. And when very few of the other 81% of the population will ever open a Bible for themselves to see what's inside, the best chance they have of discovering anything about Jesus is if someone who has a faith shares it with them in the course of a conversation. And when it comes to having those conversations, when it comes to witnessing to our faith, the key text is that verse from 1 Peter chapter 3, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But why should they ask? What is it about you or me that might prompt someone to say, tell me, where do you get that hope that I see in you from? Actually, disturbingly, we as Christians don't come across as particularly hopeful people. The Talking Jesus survey again found that most people think we're friendly, which is good news. Roughly half think we're caring, which is okay. Less than half think that we have a good sense of humour. Clearly, all of you do, that's great. Less than 40% think that we're generous. Just over a quarter think that we're encouraging. Hence the need to focus on building up. Less than a quarter would say that the Christians they know are hopeful. That really bothers me because Peter says we should give an account of the hope that is in us when someone asks about it. Yet most people when they look at us don't see people who are filled with hope. They don't see people who always look on the bright side of life. And that realisation made me pause and think, you know, what is hope anyway? Hope has been defined as the desire of some good with a, a certain expectation of attaining it. Now clearly a major slice of the Christian hope is bound up with the hope of eternal life. It's a big difference that you see when you go to the funeral of someone who's been a committed Christian. There's not just a hope that, oh, perhaps I hope they might possibly be in heaven. There is a confident expectation that they are with Christ and that we, as we share their faith, will one day be reunited with them. Because Jesus died and rose again for us, if we believe in him, we don't just have a a certain expectation of attaining eternal life. Our expectation is certain because it's grounded in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So yes, Christians should be those people who can look death square in the eye and still be filled with hope because of Jesus. But is that it? Is our hope just about pie in the sky when we die? What about daily life? Do we face that with hope as well? Charles Swindle said that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. As Christians, are we glass half full or glass half empty people? You know, I should have thought that if we believe in a God who loves us and who answers prayer, then we have a good reason to be fairly optimistic about life, really. 
People, when they look at Christians, should be saying, look at them, where do they get their positive attitude and hope from? When everybody else around just seems to be ready to throw in the towel, those are the people who never give up hope. That should be the outcome of the love that God has placed in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The hope that hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things, and is not disappointed. When I read 1 Peter, yes, of course, Peter talks about the hope that's laid in heaven for us, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's in chapter 1. But in chapter 3, where he talks about the hope that is in us, he talks about people who want to love life, who want to see good days, who seek peace and pursue it, and who know that the Lord hears their prayers. He's talking about people whose everyday lives are filled with hope, even in adversity. The daily grind doesn't get them down because their faith in an amazing God fills them with hope. And this God is amazing, isn't he? Because he raised Jesus Christ, his son, from the dead. He's the God of resurrection, the God for whom nothing is impossible. Surely, if we have this God as a constant presence in our lives and we've put our trust in him, we cannot but be people who live our lives in hope who hope for something better than the status quo. Michael Ramsey, the 100th Archbishop of Canterbury, had this to say about hope. What is our hope concerning this world in which we're now living? Certainly Christ encourages us to have hope concerning it. We are to pray, thy kingdom come on earth. And so to hope that God's rule may become apparent in the world everywhere. He goes on, thus we hope to see races free from injustice to one another, for racial strife is a denial of the divine image in man. We hope to see nations so using the earth's resources and economic structures that all may have enough to eat, instead of some being affluent while others starve. We hope to see war and the possibility of war banished, We hope to see family life everywhere secure and stable, happy and unselfish, with sex fulfilling its true use in lifelong marriage. We hope to see chastity, honesty and compassion prevail. We hope to see these things happen as part of a deep reconciliation between God and man through Jesus Christ. We hope to see people brought everywhere into fellowship with God through him. In all this, we hold in one our hope about earth and our hope about heaven. A Christian can scarcely separate these hopes as Jesus is the Lord of both earth and heaven. Hmm. Challenging, thought-provoking stuff. And when we think about the unfolding of history since his day, those things he said we should be hoping for seem less And less likely. And yet to give up hope is to give up on the possibility of a change for the better. It's to shrug our shoulders and leave the world to go its own way from bad to worse. And we cannot, we must not do that. Because the basis for our prayers is a hope that 
God loves the world. This is the world for which Jesus died. He is involved with the world. And so the potential for good change is there. So we have to pray and to work for positive change, believing that it is possible to make a difference. And that attitude will mark us out as people who live and work and pray for hope in a world of injustice and evil and despair. The Christian hope is not a matter of closing our eyes to the world and simply waiting for our own life to draw to a close or for Jesus to come again. God's spirit is active in the world. The resurrection of power, the resurrection power of Christ is at work in and through his people and we believe in a God who is engaged with the world and who responds to our prayers. So yes, we are called to be a people filled with hope. That hope makes a difference here and now to how we live. It can make a difference here and now to the world around us. And while, apart from at a funeral, it's unlikely that many people are going to ask you about the hope that you have of eternal life, on an everyday basis, it's entirely plausible that if we are people of hope, someone might notice that and say, how come you are so positive when there is so little to celebrate in the news today? And that's the moment when we want to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have within us. And being ready to give that answer is a matter of asking ourselves the right kind of questions about our faith. As a child in the 60s, I always felt deprived because my friends were all allowed to read comics like the Beano and the Dandy. My mother wouldn't let me read comics like that. She was concerned that the comics I read should have some educational merit. And so she wouldn't buy me anything but the Treasure comic. Anybody here remember the Treasure comic? Yeah, some of you do. I don't know how old I was when I started to read it, but it ceased publication in 1971 when I was at the tender age of eight. But I can still tell you today the list of words that appeared at the top of the front page of every edition that I received. Who? Why? What? When? Where? How? Six questions that have the capacity to unlock all knowledge. And crucial questions actually for us when we think about communicating our faith effectively to other people who might be interested in it. Who? Who is Jesus? The first session of the Alpha Course addresses this question. And we're looking at running an Alpha Course next year on Tuesday evenings. So please have a word with me or Pete Downs or John Fisher if you're interested in attending or bringing somebody to that. Who is Jesus? Most people think of Jesus as someone spiritual, loving and peaceful. Even people outside the church think that. Two out of every five people don't think that Jesus was ever a real person. They think of him as a mythical or a fictional character or they just don't know what to think. About half the people questioned thought of Jesus as just an ordinary human being or some kind of prophet or spiritual leader. Only one in five believes that Jesus is God in human form. So who? Who is Jesus? What do you believe? It's a good question to ask yourself so that you know who you believe him to be and you're able to give cogent reasons to back up that belief if someone asks you, who do you think Jesus is? Who? Why? Why do you follow Jesus? 
It's a question Mark Green posed, and it's a good one. Why do you believe? Why do you go to church? Why are you a Christian? Is it just because you were brought up to do so? Or is it because at some point that faith became personal to you? Who, why, what? What difference does your faith make to you as a person? What difference did it make when you became a Christian? What difference does it make here and now? When it comes to sussing out the Christian faith, before they want to know whether it's true or not, people want to know whether it works. What difference does Jesus make to you? When? When did you become a Christian? That's another challenging one. When did you become a Christian? Because the idea that you have to become a Christian at all will strike lots of people as being really strange. The majority of people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, tick that box because they're born in the UK and maybe because they were christened as a baby. The idea that you have to opt in to becoming a Christian. It's a decision that you make. That faith is a conscious thing. That's a a totally strange idea to the majority of people, even those who would say, yes, I'm a Christian. But Jesus talked about the need to be born again, to be born from above in order to see the kingdom of God. Being a Christian involves a change. It requires a decision to repent of my sin, to put my trust in Christ, to accept him as Lord. And all those factors summed up in the decision to get baptised, because baptism is a baptism of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, when did you become a Christian? Where? Where? Where did you first hear about Jesus? And where are the people you're talking to going to hear about Jesus if they don't hear it from you? And lastly, how? How did you become a Christian? And how can the person you're talking to become a Christian if that's what they want to do? As with all knowledge, knowing the right questions is more important than learning a set of answers. So when it comes to understanding and communicating your faith, you need to be asking all the time questions like who, why, what, when, where, how. And when someone asks you one of those questions, you'll have an idea of how to respond. Because as Peter so rightly urges us, we should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give a reason for the hope that we have.